church. If you could, please open up to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, it's in the New Testament. If you're not familiar with your Bible, you're visiting with us, that's okay. You'll go to the last part of the book of, of the Bible. You'll see Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, and then you'll see 1 Corinthians. So if you see any of those, it's a little bit afterwards. We are taking a major detour. Genesis can be broken down into two sections. Chapters 1 through 11, the creation of the world, and then chapters 11 or 12 through 50, the creation of Israel. We see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the formation of the nation of Israel in that second chunk of Genesis. So this week we would have been starting Genesis 12, but somewhere around the middle of the week, I decided to adjust course. We're going to hit the pause button on Genesis, not permanently, and we're going to move over to 1 Corinthians. As we seek to clarify what a church is and what a church should be, I think that 1 Corinthians speaks loud and clear to many issues that we're facing and that churches around the world face on a regular basis. So before we dive into our text, here's the main idea this morning. The main idea is a church's identity is centered on Christ. A church's identity is centered on Christ. So if you're taking notes, that's going to be the thrust of the message this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Hopefully everyone is there. If you could please, let's stand together for the reading of God's holy word. Because what we are about to read is the divinely inspired Word of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 1. <clears throat> Here we go. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, do in our hearts this morning a work that only you can do. Remove me and remove all of us and let your truth shine forward in your word this morning. Bring about change, bring about salvation, bring about a mighty work that we might praise your name and join with you in your work. It's in Jesus' name I pray all these things. Amen. Thank you, church. You can be seated. So as Paul starts this book to the Corinthian church, in verse 1, we see a common introduction that's used in a lot of Paul's letters and a lot of other letters at the time. Okay, Typically, when we write a letter, the name that goes first is the person that we're writing to, dear so-and-so. Then we have the bulk of the letter, 
And then we say, yours truly, sincerely, love, whatever it is, and then the name of the sender at the end. But in ancient letter formatting, this was the standard template that's used. We have the person that wrote and who they are writing to right off the bat, and then sometimes, typically, some form of greeting. And that's what we see here in verses 1, 2, and 3. So verse 1 states the author. The author is Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes. So most scholars say that Sosthenes is likely a partner in the ministry. He's traveling with Paul and doing ministry. But some even suggest that he was what's called an amanuensis, which is just a fancy word for a transcriptionist. He would sit by Paul as Paul is reciting, he is dictating, and then this person is likely scribing and printing out the letter because writing was not a common thing back then. You had to pay someone to do that. It wasn't taught as regularly like it is today in our schools. So Sosthenes is likely a brother in Christ who is assisting Paul in the writing of this letter. And so Paul includes him here in the introduction. Paul wrote this letter around 55 A.D., from Ephesus, and it's important to know that this letter is not Paul's first letter to the Corinthian church. It's actually at least his second. It's hard to say exactly which one it is because we don't have all the letters. We don't have a record of those, but we know that it's not the first because later in this letter, we're going to see where Paul references a prior letter that he wrote. He says, when I wrote to you before, I was intending this. So what's happened is Paul has written to the Corinthian church. They have written a response and sent it back to Paul. He's read it, and now he is writing another response and sending it back to them. They have this regular communication between them as Paul is traveling around and ministering in these different churches. The same thing happens, by the way, with 2 Corinthians, where it's not the third letter. It is probably likely the fourth letter. There was another letter in between there that we don't have in our Bibles. So Paul identifies himself here as an apostle. And this word apostle can mean a couple of things. Number one, it can mean the office of apostle. This is an individual that was set apart by God to be a witness to Jesus Christ. This person would have an eyewitness testimony of Jesus. They can say, I have seen Jesus. They were charged by God to be his special messengers. Now, it's really important for us to know today, this office no longer exists. People are not set apart as apostles today. This was a one-time office because Jesus' earthly ministry is finished there is no one able to claim, I've seen the Lord in his earthly ministry. Paul was the final one who saw the risen Christ after his earthly ministry. He appeared to him, and then there was a period of time where Paul learns the truth of the gospel from him. So Paul is the last apostle. This office no longer exists. There are many churches today that call their leaders apostles. If you ever go in a church... And that leader claims to be an apostle. I'm giving you permission now. Stand up in the middle of the service. Run out the door. Run out the door. Typically what happens in these churches is the leader will use that title as a way to gain an authority that they don't actually have. It ends up being very cult-like, typically. 
So that's the first understanding of the word apostle. It's important for us as we break this verse down. The second meaning, an apostle can also be a messenger. So when the Sanhedrin would have to weigh in on an important matter, this Jewish high council or Supreme Court type of a thing, they would send a delegate or an ambassador, an emissary. And this person would go on their behalf to weigh in on a matter. And they would say, here's what the Sanhedrin says. And when they are speaking in that moment, they carry the full weight of the authority of the Sanhedrin. It is as though the Sanhedrin is speaking through this person. And we have recorded what they called this person. You know what it was. Apostolos, the Greek for apostle. So it's a messenger. It is a, an ambassador, an emissary, or a delegate. It was a designated messenger. You couldn't just decide, oh, I'm going to be a spokesperson for the Sanhedrin. They would hand select someone who would carry that to fruition. And that person would carry all of the authority of the full Sanhedrin as he spoke for them. So Paul's identification as an apostle in this context carries the full weight of this word. He is called, excuse me, he is called by God to carry his message in an authoritative way. When Paul is speaking as an apostle, he is speaking for God to his church. And these messages carry the full weight of God's authority. Do you know where these messages are today? You're holding it in your hand. This is it. This is the continuation of the apostolic witness. This is the authoritative message of God for us through his apostles and through the Old Testament scriptures. It's the Bible. This brings us to our first point this morning as we try to understand and in coming into this letter, what exactly is a church? Number one, a church submits to God through the Bible. A church submits to God through the Bible. It's interesting to me how we get in our minds this idea that I'm a Christian and I belong to God and I'm serving God Yet most of the things that we do in our life have little foundational evidence in the scriptures. We can't, <coughs> excuse me, we cannot obey God if we are not coming to God through the scriptures. This is how he instructs us. Now, I don't want to downplay the role of the Spirit in our lives. The Holy Spirit is vital in leading and in guiding us. However, our hearts are deceitfully wicked. Have you ever been in a situation where someone says, well, God, I think that God is telling me to do this. And then someone else thinks, well, that's weird because I think God is telling me to do the opposite. Uh-oh, what are we going to do now? This eliminates that confusion very well. Because we have to guess and speculate. Am I hearing from the Spirit rightly? But this makes it real clear for us. This renews our mind, Romans 12. It transforms our mind so that we can test and approve what God's good, pleasing, and perfect will is. So not to downplay prayer and the leading of the Spirit, but this is the ultimate authority in our life. If we want to say, I submit to God, we have to say, I submit to the Bible. 
If we don't submit to the Bible, we are not submitting to God. This is how we submit to God, is in the pages of Scripture. At the time of the Reformation, 500-something years ago, the Catholic Church was in full prominence, and the Protestant Church was being birthed, and one of the truths that came out of that, there's these five things called solas. We won't get into that now. One of them is sola scriptura. It means scripture alone. And what they were saying is that the church tradition, the Catholic Church has this passed down authority that they claim from Peter all the way down to today. So that the Pope, as he speaks ex cathedra, he is speaking on behalf of God almost as an apostle. And that that authority is just as authoritative in the Christian's life as the scriptures. Protestant churches, of which we are one, we say no. The Bible alone is the only authoritative rule for faith and practice. That's not to say that there's not beneficial authority in our lives through our pastors, through spiritual leaders, Sunday school teachers, but it's to say that if we're going to do something, it needs to be based on this book. A faithful messenger of God will make the Bible his message. A lot of preaching today is essentially a spiritualized, motivational talk that relies on the Bible less and less because in our culture it's becoming less and less appealing. One of the accusations is, well, this book is how many hundreds of years old? It's not relevant anymore. That could not be further from the truth. This is the most relevant book on the face of this planet because it has to do with life and death, existence, the meaning and purpose of being. This is the most important book on this planet. The Bible will always be relevant because the Bible will always be God's word. And if the Bible will always be God's word, then the church should always prioritize it in its preaching, in its praying, in its polity, in its singing, in its sanctification, and so on. So Paul, an apostle of God, was writing. And we have his written record right here. Who is he writing to? Look at verse 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth. So let me tell you briefly about Corinth. Greece is composed of two large masses of land. And if you look from a map, it almost looks like it's just one unit. But if you zoom in, it is actually connected by a very thin isthmus. And there's water on one side, water on the other, and then there's just this tiny little land bridge that's literally just miles wide. And that is where Corinth was situated. So anytime you want to go from the upper part to the lower part, everything had to be funneled down through Corinth. If you wanted to travel back and forth from north to south, you went through Corinth. So it is a major area of traffic and trade and commerce. And in the same way that there was this kind of land bridge, there was also a desire to take goods via ship to another side of Greece, but instead of having to go 200-something miles around, man, if we could just go a few miles across the land, that would be awesome. So they would shore their boats up and drag them across the land there to put them in the water on the other side. 
So when I say it is a major center for trade, there was constantly traffic going through Corinth one way or the other. All this is to say it was a major city with major commerce. And when you have a major city like this, a major trade city, almost always immorality comes with it. We have a phrase in America that's very similar. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. That's kind of the mentality here. It's okay because we're just here for one day, so this is almost an opportunity to just let the flesh go, and then we'll just forget about it later kind of a thing. And then the people that live there end up adopting this immoral living, and then the city gets worse and worse. You've got all these people with different religious backgrounds all coming together and this kind of mosh-posh of ideas And Corinth became so bad that there was a label they would give people. The English equivalent would be that person is Corinthianized. It means they are becoming like a Corinthian. That was the insult that you would give to someone. That's how bad it was in Corinth. So the church in Corinth is composed of people who were saved out of this background of rampant sexual immorality, greed, debauchery, Basically, just total worldliness. And because the church was young, it was immature, both in its knowledge and in its holiness. This is the church that Paul is writing to. But I want you to notice something. It does not say, look at verse 2. It does not say, to the church of Corinth. What does it say? It is the church of God. That is in Corinth. The church is the universal body of believers across all time and space. So I'm a member of the church just like Paul was a member of the church. Just like you're a member of the church. Just like your relative, maybe it lives halfway across the United States, who's a Christian, they're a member of the church. Just like the believers from 500 years ago are members of the church. In that sense, it's a people. However... This universal body necessarily manifests itself in specific times and places. How is it that we, the church, come together in a local building like this? What if we don't have a building? Then we'll meet in someone's house. What if we don't have a house? Then we'll meet in the park. We're going to meet somewhere. But there's a local expression as a way of saying we are a body that represents this larger body of Christ. That is what a church is. Here, the church manifested itself in Corinth as the Corinthian church, but it's not really the Corinthians' church. It's God's church. It doesn't belong to them. This leads to number two. A church belongs to God, not to itself. A church belongs to God, not to itself. It is not the Corinthians' church, just like this is not our church. This is God's church. Now, we like to speak that way and say, oh yeah, this is my, what church do you go to? Oh, well, my church is down the road. That's how we speak, and I think that that's okay, as long as we aren't adapting this mindset, adopting this mindset that the church 
is collectively ours. We own it. We may own the building. God owns this church. And in Revelation, there's a warning to these seven churches. And God warns them, I will come to your lampstand and extinguish your light if you do not do these things. It's a reminder that these churches, all of our churches belong to God, not us. If you continue in verse 2, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. So in debate, in law, in philosophy, one of the most important things you can do is define your terms before proceeding. That's what Paul is doing. He is defining what a church is. To the church of God that's in Corinth. Now let me explain what that means. When I say to the church, I'm saying to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. The Greek word here for sanctified is derived from the Greek word for holy, hagios. To be sanctified is to be made holy. It's to be set apart for a purpose from your sin. Think about what Paul's saying here. The church in Corinth is a church in the midst of deep immorality. And that immorality has crept into the church. That'll become apparent later. Yet, Paul calls the church sanctified. To the church of God in Corinth, those sanctified in Christ Jesus, those who have been made holy. What Paul is referring to here is what happened for Christians at the cross. Hebrews 10.10 says this, We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11 says this, You were washed, you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The sacrifice of Jesus washes away our sin in such a way that we are no longer called dirty. We're called clean. Even the Corinthian church, in their immorality, God called them clean, not dirty. So the word holy, to be set apart, means that we have been set apart from our sin by the cross of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be sanctified. The Bible has a word for those people who have been set apart and sanctified. Do you know what it is? It's the word saint. Saint. It's right here in our verse. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Called to be saints. The word for saint. Can anybody guess what it is? It is the word hagios. Holy. So the same word for sanctified is the exact same word for saint. It is to be made holy and then to be a holy one. One who is holy. A saint is not a person of extraordinary faith who has done something miraculous and they're forever recorded in history as a saint. Saint Nicholas, Saint Francis of Assisi, 
That is not what a saint is. A saint is not a dead person who accomplished mighty things for the Lord. The Bible uses the word saint to describe all Christians. Number three, a church is composed of saints. A church is composed of holy ones. Philippians chapter 4, 21 through 22. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Colossians 1 verse 2. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Ephesians 1 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. A saint is not a next-level Christian. A saint is simply a Christian. And a Christian is simply a saint. And what that means is that a Christian, by designation, is a holy one. And I want you to notice the word that he uses, called to be saints. Holiness is the calling for every Christian. Holiness is what we are called to. Look at verse 2 again. Called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. I hope you feel the full weight of this word called. If you were in Christ... God has called you to holiness. In fact, he has called you to holiness in the same way that Paul was called by God to be an apostle. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle. Saints called to be saints. We look at Paul sometimes, we're like, man, to be called like that of God, man, what a cool thing. Maybe one day that would happen to me. That would be so neat. It has already happened. In saving you, God has called you to himself and said, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. And we, our response should be, but Lord, I'm a man of unclean lips and I live in the midst of an unclean people. But through the cross, our sin is atoned for, and now we can respond, okay, Lord, here I am. Send me and use me. He's going to use you in calling you further and further and deeper into holiness. Now, we just looked at the fact that Christians are already made holy. They are sanctified. That's the past tense of the word. However... The Bible speaks about the Christian sanctification in three ways, past, present, and future. And the risk is, in our calling towards holiness, that we might be so wrapped up in the past tense version of it that we don't seek it in the present and we don't look forward to it in the future. We hear this calling to be holy and we think, okay, I'm already made holy, great. So we give less attention to our calling to holiness now. The past tense form of holiness, sanctification, is called positional 
sanctification, positional sanctification. This means that our status says holy. We have a name tag. It says holy. It is your identity in Christ once you repent and believe the gospel. That's the past tense, positional sanctification. The present tense of sanctification is what we're typically the most familiar with. It's called progressive sanctification. That means that we are on a journey. We've hopped onto a train. The train has started moving, and now we are pursuing a goal of holiness. There is constant forward momentum in our journey towards holiness. We are being sanctified. We have been sanctified. We are being sanctified. It is the process of becoming holy. Every Christian is in the middle of progressive sanctification. And then the future tense is technically called ultimate sanctification. But because we're in a Baptist church, I'm going to call it perfected sanctification because it starts with a P, if you didn't catch that. Perfected sanctification. So positional, progressive, perfected. And that perfected sanctification, that ultimate sanctification, is the state that we are going to be in in heaven when we are finally free from sin. Sin no longer reigns in our mortal bodies there. We are finally free from the presence and reign of sin. We have been perfected. The train has arrived at the station. So the train starts at salvation, then our whole lives, we are on this route. And then when that moment comes for the Lord to call us home, it's like the train just instantly appears at this station and we're there. We have finally arrived. To use one more analogy, consider any type of job you might get. When you get a job, you get a job title. My second job ever was working at Sonic. My first was Brookshire's, but that one was pretty easy. My second job was working at Sonic, and I can remember the first day. They're training me on, they called it the switchboard. And you go up to this little board. It's like a, almost like a video game system screen type of thing. And there's this big thing with all these little square buttons, and the buttons are like this big, and the board is like this big, and it's covered in them. I mean, it's like 400 buttons. I mean, it's a lot. It's a lot of buttons. And so they would put on the little headset, hey, welcome to Sonic, my name's so-and-so, what can I get for you? And people would just start spouting out, I want a number two, hold a pickle, extra mayonnaise, you know, I want french fries, melt some cheese on it, I want a drink with light ice. And so, like, they're training me on this, and I'm watching someone do this, they've got this headset on, and they're just going, bloop, 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 beep, boop, beep, boop. And they're just, like, hitting all these buttons all over the board, and I am, like, I'm, I'm scared at this point. I'm thinking, I can't do this. And I'm watching them go through it, and I'm like, okay. So look, you know, these kind of things are typically here, except for the special, it's over here. But then these items are here. But then we had to replace this button, so it's down here. So you try it out, okay? I put this headset on, and they start spouting out an order. And they've given me, like, almost half the order, and I'm still trying to just hit the first few buttons. Like, where's the cheeseburger? Where's the button that says no cheese? And I'm thinking, I, there's no way I can do this. In that moment, was I as skilled and equipped as that former employee who was training me? No. Am I still an employee of the restaurant? Absolutely I am. Yes. I'm just as much employed by this restaurant as you are. I just as much belong to my boss in this moment as you do. Even though you may be further along in your abilities, 
we are both still sonic employees. And it's the same way with our sanctification. We are all sanctified, but we are all at different points in our progressive sanctification. And the goal is to increase in holiness, to get better, to be more efficient just like we would in our workplaces. Christians are already called holy, but at the same time, they are called on a journey of growing in holiness until we are complete in holiness. That's how God describes his church here. It is a people who are positionally holy on the journey of progressive holiness towards perfected holiness in heaven. Now, towards the end of verse 2 here, Paul says that the saints are the ones who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Christians do not exist in a vacuum. We don't exist in isolation. We exist as part of a universal body of believers who are all called to be holy. And one of the identifying marks of these believers is that they believe that Jesus is the source and the means of our holiness. Here's what that means. That means that we initially call upon Jesus to save us, but then we call upon Jesus to actively, continually set us apart. So these saints here, they have not just called upon Jesus, but they actively call upon Jesus. It is only through Jesus that we're saved, and it's also only through Jesus that we grow in holiness. How do we do this? By actively calling on him. Growth in holiness. Forgive the corny statement. I'm giving you a warning. It's coming. Growth in holiness is not a matter of willpower, but of prayer power. You do not grow in holiness because you get better at doing it. You get better at holiness because you pray about it more. You call upon Jesus more. Me and Stacy did something years and years ago that I can't think of outside of just time studying the scriptures a more powerful example of God's power in my life than when we did this. And I don't remember the context, but we had in our room these little index cards. And we had written on it kind of like fruits of the Spirit, but then expanded. So love, we put it on the wall. Joy, put it on the wall. Peace. But then we had other things that we had put on the wall. And those were the things that we prayed over for ourselves in growth. I'd like to say that we still have that. We don't. It was in an apartment. It was a long time ago now. But we actively, when we prayed, we positioned it in such a way that I could come around to this side of the bed and kneel right there and look up at the wall and know the things that I'm praying over in my life. That's not to say that there is no effort involved in our growth and holiness. But I think that we're probably in danger in the church in general of the opposite. I think we're probably in danger of praying too little and trying too much. We think, well, I know what I need to do. I just need to do it. And I think it's because we are in the midst of a culture that operates that way. How do you excel in business? The person who works the hardest gets it. 
Early bird gets the worm. Those are good, true things. We should absolutely do those things. But the secret is not our ability to actively do it ourselves. Our secret is that we call upon the Lord to grow in those things. You don't become more holy because you're trying harder or utilizing better techniques. You become more holy because you're calling upon Jesus. If you could be holy on your own, you wouldn't need to be saved. But you do need to be saved, so you can't. You can't do it on your own. Number four, a church needs Jesus at all times. At all times, we need Jesus. We can't just call on Jesus to be saved. We can't just call on Jesus when we have a need. We need to call on Jesus at all times because we need him at all times. The Christian that doesn't need Jesus at all times is either delusional or deceived. You are living contrary to reality. You are refusing to accept in your mind a vital truth for your sanctification. You need Jesus at all times. When we begin to become into a state where we think we don't need Jesus at all times, that is called self-righteousness. I don't need Jesus for my righteousness in this moment. I can do it. Self-righteousness. We need Jesus at all times. This should be the regular practice of all Christians calling upon Jesus because Jesus is the Lord of all Christians. Look in the verse. Saints, together with those who in every place call upon the name, and then it designates it twice, the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So we call upon Jesus because he's our Lord. May we be known as those who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a standard greeting used by Paul. Grace can mean unmerited favor. It's receiving something that you didn't earn, you didn't work for, you don't deserve. And it's the best way to describe what Jesus has done for us. We didn't earn forgiveness, and we don't deserve it. But Jesus dies for us anyway. That's called grace. It's a gift. Peace is a common Jewish greeting. The Hebrew equivalent would be shalom. But the peace that Paul talks about here is a peace that is related to the grace that we've received. Peace is a result of grace. One commentator that I read called it a fruit of grace. Because we have received grace, we have received peace. And the peace that we have is unique only to Christianity. In the book of John, we read about how Jesus gives us his peace, not as the world gives, do I give to you. Philippians chapter 4 verse 7 says that the peace of God surpasses all understanding. It is only when we grasp our helpless state before Jesus that the grace of God will produce the peace of God within you. The world can't understand this. 
And the world can't give this kind of peace. Only Jesus can. And that's why we call upon him and no one else. This leads us to our last point this morning. A church enjoys grace and peace from God. A church enjoys grace and peace from God. It is only because the entirety of our sin has been wiped out on the cross that we have peace with God. The joy is in knowing that our peace with God is not the only peace we experience. That peace will overflow into your life. You may think, yes, Garrett, but I'm an anxious person. I struggle with stress or anxiety. Maybe you don't struggle with that, but you have moments that just stress you out. The entirety of your sin has been wiped clean. The worst thing that could happen is you die and go to be with the Lord for eternity. That sounds like a pretty good deal to me. This perspective on life will bring you a strange level of peace that the world doesn't understand. That doesn't mean that you don't think wisely about your circumstances. Oh, the, the floor is flooding in the house. It's okay, we're saved. It's all right. It doesn't flesh itself out like that. But it means that the world is going to recognize a peace within you that it doesn't understand, and it can't understand it, because they haven't experienced the grace you've experienced. Only a believer in Christ can look to another believer in Christ and say grace and peace to you and receive that in the way that it's intended. No one else can because no one else can know this type of peace. It is a gift from God to us. So, a church that submits itself to the Scriptures belongs to God and is composed of saints who are pursuing holiness by regularly calling upon the name of the Lord Jesus is a church that knows both grace and peace. This is what it is to become a church. It is to pursue that. So church, may we pursue that kind of church, submitting to the scriptures because we belong to God, making Jesus the center of everything we do, being known for calling upon Jesus, and being evidently perceived as one who has received both grace and peace. Amen? Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, when we think about the works of your hands, the moon and the stars that you've set in place, we wonder and we ponder, who are we that you would be mindful of someone like us. Like the Corinthian church, we are an unclean people in the midst of an unclean people. Yet you stepped down in space and time and took on flesh in order to cleanse us and to declare us holy. We confess to you, O Lord, that we do not live as though we are holy. 
We need your power to work in us that which is good and pleasing and acceptable in your sight. We need your strength and every ounce of energy you provide in order to continue on our path of sanctification towards holiness. Make us into a holy people because you, our God, are holy. Thank you for saving us and calling us holy. Thank you that we can't lose our status of holiness because of the mistakes that we will continue to inevitably make. Thank you for being a God of grace to us. Fill us with your peace as we recall these wonderful truths. Fashion us, your church, into a people after your image and likeness. For your honor and glory, in Jesus' name I pray, amen.